0: this is the education gadfly show
1: come on how many times are there big education policy events in richmond virginia what does Gadfly say hello this is your host mike Petrilli of the thomas b fordham institute here at the education gadfly show and online at fordhaminstitute.org. and now please welcome my special guest for this week secretary amy gadara amy welcome back to the
0: show Thank you so much, Mike. It is so great to talk to you again. So thanks for having me back.
1: Well, it is great to have you here in your very official capacity. I believe the last time you were on, you were probably still the CEO of the Data Quality Campaign. And of course, you were founder of that, former president and CEO. You are now the Virginia Secretary of Education. And that is very exciting. And we are so glad to have you on. We've been wanting to have you on for months and months. But this is perfect timing because you just came out with a big new report that's created quite the splash there in Richmond and the Commonwealth about education in Virginia, laying out an agenda for the governor and his administration going forward. And so we're going to talk about that on Ed Reform Update. All right, so you know I'm going to have to keep reminding myself to call you Secretary Gadira and you, and not Amy, not oh, you can no, call no, me no, Amy, no, you can, no, yes you, you can are a Amy. secretary. You've got people listening can't see it, but she's got an American flag and a Virginia flag behind her. That makes her so official. That was my favorite thing when I when I was at the Department of Education long ago. I, I had flags in my office as well, and and that that really made me feel good. But I had three words before the word secretary, and you've got none. So the fact that you are Secretary of Education in Virginia is super cool. So we are here to talk about this new report. It's called Our Commitment to Virginians, High Expectations and Excellence for All Students. Tell us what what is in this report, what are we all trying to do with it. Uh, And Mike, thanks again
0: for having me on the show and also giving some uh, coverage to this report. You know, our commitment to Virginians really tells us where we are in the Commonwealth and also lays out where Governor Youngkin wants to lead the state. And there are three parts to it. One, it really is a snapshot of where we are and how well we're serving our students and how well we're not serving all of our students. And I can go into some of the detail about Mm -hmm. that. Second of all, it lays out a set of principles that are going to guide everything we're doing in education, both in K-12 and higher education, that are going to guide every decision we make as an administration. And third of all, it starts to really start talking about some specific actions we're going to do immediately to begin having some of those policy priorities and those principles come to life. But the first part, you know, before you can lay out an agenda and lay out your strategy and where you want to go, you need to have a sense of where you are. And there are just four critical pieces that this report documents. One, we have downward trends in reading and math across all these different assessments. And we know Mm -hmm. that this started happening before the pandemic. And what's so critical on this is. You know, I'm coming out of living in Minnesota for the last 15 years, and I thought I had left Lake Wobegon behind, where, you know, all the women are strong, men are beautiful, and all the children are above average. And it feels like that that has followed me here to Virginia, right? Virginia has an incredible reputation of having an excellent education system at K-12 and higher ed. And what we're seeing in these trends is that we do have excellence, but the trends are all going in the wrong direction. And we're also finding that the gaps are growing. And so what we need to be truthful about with ourselves is that we are not serving all children well and that the demands of the economy are gonna demand more and more and we need to raise our expectations and we need to be honest with ourselves. So a couple of things we see, we see these downward trends, we see that we know now and we've known for a while That we have the lowest proficiency cut scores in the nation for grade four and eight reading and grade four math. That's just unconscionable that we are not expecting more and that we have the lowest uh, cut scores. Third of all, that leads to an honesty gap, right? This is, as you know, this national term that achieved started in 2015. We had 18 states at that point that had this gap between NAEP proficiency and their proficiency scores on their state summative exams. Every other state in the country has done the hard work of raising their standards, raising their proficiency cut scores, except for Virginia. And again, this is just irrefutable that we have the lowest cut scores. And what that bottom line means, we are not holding our students to the highest standards they need to. And we're also not telling the truth to our parents or teachers or taxpayers about where our students are and if they're on track for success. And the last piece that we document in the report is that we have a distorted school accreditation system. Over time, the state board has changed the definition of what school accreditation is based on, and it now equally rates growth and weights growth more than proficiency. And so, while measuring growth really, really matters, as you know, it really matters also to get our kids to proficiency and making sure they're on track for success. So, those are some of the data points that we highlight in the report on some of the policy principles I'm happy to go into as well.
1: Yeah, no, look, obviously, as somebody who's been a, a big Advocate of higher standards for a long time and wanting to close this honesty gap. This is this is something that's really important. And Virginia, it has a challenge because it is one of those states where everybody thinks, oh, they're doing fantastic. One of my favorite tools when looking at comparisons between states is when you go to the Urban Institute's website. I think they call it something like America's Gradebook. And what you can do is they apply some uh, some controls to basically say, well. Of course, we know that the most affluent states end up looking the best on NAEP if you just look at test scores. But so what happens if we control for demographics of various sorts? And Virginia is one of those states where when you apply the controls, it makes the biggest difference in the downward direction. That just indicates, again, that Virginia is a very overall affluent state, a lot of well-educated parents, certainly especially in, in northern Virginia, but also down in, or near Norfolk with the military footprint. Uh, But when you apply those controls, it doesn't look as good, especially, man, in in eighth grade reading, the scores are just like downright terrible. I mean, way down below the average. So the message you're trying to send here, it seems to me, is to tell people in Virginia, hey, you know, we're not as great as we think we are. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. we used to have this situation in Maryland, too, because for a long time, the state superintendent was cheating on the NAEP. They were uh, excluding tons (laughs) of special ed kids, you know, but. There were years and years of education week declaring Maryland the number one state in the country. And and that perception still sticks around, even though it was mistaken. And here you have the same issue in Virginia. It strikes me that the Washington Post did an article on on this release and you know, kind of went after. I think they just missed the point on what the honesty gap was about. You know, they, they were like trying to indicate that you were trying to make Virginia look bad instead of saying, well, no, that the point isn't about the raw test scores. So again, as I say, when you adjust for demographics in some areas, they're not great, but more the information that you're telling parents are, and holding schools accountable for, right? Are we going to actually expect kids to be at high levels of readiness? And look, we have these debates, checkers out with a book on NAEP, and this is a big part of the debate right now, is, is proficient too high. More and more evidence comes out that especially in reading, proficient is right about on college ready. So in other words, if you score proficient in reading, you are on track to succeed in college or a career-oriented college at that in reading. And guess what? You've got, you know, tons of kids in Virginia that are not on track by the eighth grade, probably even worse than the twelfth grade. So anyway, I'm not asking a question here, Amy. I'm just spouting on. No,
0: but that. I'll even just jump into your non-question and I'll say that you know it's not just. We believe deeply that the honesty gap is a real thing and that we're aiming to close it. But we also, why we took so much time to put so much data together and to show a holistic picture is that we have data points from lots of different collections that also show, you know, and some of the most alarming ones are, you know, 42% of our Virginia second graders are below benchmark on our early literacy work. Mm -hmm. And that was happening. The trend on that was before the pandemic hit and it's worse. I mean, almost half of our kids are not on track for reading in second grade without mm-hmm. serious intervention. Pause on that for a second and think about what that means since we know that third grade reading matters you know, to everything in terms of long-term outcomes. But also only 33% of our eighth graders are proficient in reading. So you know, we're seeing these trend lines continue and only 38% of our fourth grades are, are proficient at readings on mm-hmm. the nation's report cards. So just these numbers continue to go down. And then we're also seeing that between 2017 and 2019, our reading SOL test scores have gone down every single year. Mm-hmm. And then also even at our highest levels, our AP scores, you know, we were third in the nation in terms of the number of students earning college credit on AP exams. And we fallen into ninth just in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Those are all trend lines that are not going the right direction. And that's what governance is about, right? Good leadership and governance is calling it what it is and keeping our eye on the prize of saying those trend lines are going the wrong direction. And we want Virginia to be the best in the nation. We want every one of our students to be prepared for life and success in life, you know, college and career. And to do that, mm-hmm. it's about being honest with ourselves, being transparent, and being accountable to our families and our taxpayers, but most importantly like, to our students. You know, our goal here was not to use data. And you'll know my old tagline: if using data not as a hammer, but as a flashlight. Mm-hmm. Our goal here is not to beat people up with the data. Our goal here is to shine a light on the reality that exists right now in Virginia. And our invitation and our commitments is to work together to ensure that we change these trend lines so that we are preparing all students and we expand the access to opportunity and to quality education for all students. And that's why you'll see in the next part of the report that the commitments we're making is high expectations for every child. How do we make sure that we're empowering parents and teachers to make sure we know that parents and teachers? are the two most important indicators for student achievement. So how do we make sure that we're doing everything possible to make sure that parents and teachers have the training, the tools, the knowledge to do their jobs well? And we're going to focus on innovation and how do we make sure that we're expanding different ways of making sure we're educating our kids? And we're seeing these are great examples of Some active schools, right? And we're committed to Mm -hmm. opening these 20 lab schools across the Commonwealth in the next two years to expanding our governor schools. You know, I have used your lines so much, Mike, that excellence should not be a finite public good. And how do we make sure that we expand the access to excellence? And for the things that are working and that are serving kids well, how do we continue to expand those and learn from what's working and really break this one-size-fits-all approach to ensure that we're meeting every student where they are? We're going to use longitudinal data, which you know I love, to make mm-hmm. sure that we see every child. And I think what's really exciting, one of the commitments that we make in policy announcements we made last week is to say that we're going to, over the next four months before the start of the school year, we will have an analysis done of every single K-8 student and be able to alert that student, their teachers that they'll be uh, having them in their class next fall, and their parents if they're behind on any of them doing proficient work or uh, mm-hmm. grade level work. And we will put into place a personalized learning plan for every single one of those students to start the school year. And wow. our goal is, wow. how do we see children where they are see youth so we know exactly where they are? How do we communicate differently so that people have the truth and they know where their child is, whether there be a teacher, a parent, or the student themselves? And then also, how do we put together a personalized plan to make sure that those children, it's not just saying we know you're behind, but we actually have a plan to make sure that they get ahead. Um, And that's what we mean when
1: we say having the most transparent and the most accountable system in the nation. Well, and it's amazing, Amy. I mean, and it's a comprehensive agenda that, let's say, honestly, would would have fit in 10 or 15 years ago in the heart of standards-based reform time, but that passed Virginia by. I mean, uh, you know, not just because the state didn't adopt the Common Core, but just in general, So many of the other things that states got serious about in terms of data and in terms of trying to hold schools accountable, you know, Virginia took kind of the easy road. And so now you're making up time. But but let me push you on this, though. It it does feel very heavy on standards-based reform. It does not feel like there's a whole lot in here on school choice. And certainly, you know, a lot of people think of Governor Youngkin. They think of his, his campaign that was very much focused on critical race theory and some of those culture war issues. That's not here either. But tell me, I mean, so like school choice, if people are going to be disappointed that there's not more on this agenda around, you know, finally getting Virginia a decent charter school law. What what do you think about that?
0: So we, in the report, we talk about this innovation and innovation and access to quality education and to excellence is one of the seven core principles that are going to guide Mm -hmm. everything we do. And, you know, our commitment to opening 20 lab schools, and that's just the beginning in the next two years is a sign of that commitment that we want to expand access to schools that are getting results. And one of the exciting things that we launched uh, and we announced last month was an agreement to take what is a very, very successful magnet school right now in Richmond called Code RVA, which is one of our mm-hmm. it's a computer science magnet that serves 15 surrounding school divisions. And they, you know, just to give you some idea of the outcomes, so see, these are kids coming in through a lottery system that's representative of the divisions. They are scoring in the 90th percentile on all their SOLs. A third of the class graduates with an associate degree in computer science, 100% graduation rate, 100% going on to phenomenal things after graduation. And our commitment is that this school will be the model for a network of computer science schools across the Commonwealth in the next mm-hmm. two years. So that's about expanding choice. It's about expanding and building off of a model that's working and that provides a different way of approaching education. And that's our commitment, is how do we identify things that are working? our governor schools, right? Everyone wants to get into TJ. We've got this whole admissions things going on. Mm-hmm. So why are we keeping that as a limited, finite good? We have to be able to expand that. So we're committed to lab schools. We're committed to charters. We're committed to expanding regional schools like this magnet program and these lab schools. You know, we also have lots of ways like our tax credit scholarship. How do we make sure that we don't leave money on the table? And how do we ensure that people know about having these opportunities and that we talk about it? And one of the things that I'm most surprised at is, you know, our current, the Department of Education didn't even have a list of all the different innovative schools existing around, around the Commonwealth. There just wasn't this culture of innovation um, mm-hmm. that was happening. So one of the first things we're going to do is actually catalog all the places that are doing things differently and that providing choices for families and making sure people know about them. How do we learn about that? How do we make sure that people are inspired by it and realize that they too can set up a school like this? and that their children should have access to schools like this. So it's part of this is about building a culture that values choice and values innovation.
1: And how do we incent that to happen? That's great. All music to my ears. You know, And look, on the charter front, I know it's tricky. You got to get the Democrats in the state legislature to come along on that one. And maybe in future years, you'll have more success. But it sounds like a lot of this stuff you can do administratively and that the governor can do administratively. And so that's exciting. We'll be watching and sharing. And, you know, if we see things going sideways, I'll have you on. I'll ask tougher questions next time. How about that? I love that. <laughs> I'm always happy to come back and be on Gaslight. So yeah, know, I just can't I... help it. It's like, I just, you know, it's exciting when we get real reformers in these positions and, and to see you guys uh, really pushing the ball forward. So I, I can't help it. I am obviously somebody who's biased here. I think there's a lot to love about what you guys are up to.
0: Thank you. And thanks for all of your thought leadership. We we have learned,
1: I've always learned a lot from you, Mike, and I um, will continue to do so. So thanks so much. Well, thank you so much. Again, Secretary Amy Gadara, Secretary of Education in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Hope you'll come back on sometime soon. And again, uh, good luck with everything you're doing there in Virginia. It's always a pleasure to be with you. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. So I understand that you got to hear Secretary Gadira and the others talk about this Virginia plan live in Richmond.
2: Well, a live on, sorry, live on live stream. Oh, what? <laughs> Amber, I thought you were going to go. Oh my gosh, it was just a little too much to go. Plus it was little so late <laughs> and anyway, but I had—I heard a great live streaming view of it.
1: Oh, Amber, come on. <laughs> How many times are there big education policy events in Richmond, Virginia?
2: I know, I know. Well, Sorry, and,
1: and, and of course, I can I can talk today because I'm actually am in the Fordham Institute offices, which is not something that happens all the time these days. Yes,
2: must have been a reason, Mike. What are you oh, in there for? Oh, for Kate
1: <laughs> Walsh's going away party, all or right. not going away? Her her, her I was going to say graduation, her retirement party.
2: Oh, uh, exciting! That yeah. is a, definitely a reason to be in the office.
1: Yes, and and to be downtown. So, but you know. Once a week or so is plenty. That's right. That's right. Plenty. All right. Well, next time there's big education news in Richmond, we expect you to be there live. <laughs> I will Amber. do my
2: best to. Uh, you know, just working from home can get like, whoo, it's uh-huh. rough to like look presentable, get uh-huh. out of the house and you uh-huh. know, all that stuff.
1: <laughs> all right. Well, what do you have for us this week?
2: We have a new study in gifted child quarterly I think you're going to like this one examines how second grade students in rural districts perform on various measures after they're identified for gifted services using two different identification methods. Mm -hmm. So one is the business as usual general identification method used by districts, whatever they are already using. And the other is the universal screening method with local norms. Uh, The study is actually part of a larger study evaluating an elementary-level ELA curriculum designed for gifted students, hence their focus on gifted ELA in the study. Twelve low-income rural districts participated. Uh, They include farming, mining, and fishing communities, apparently. Eleven were in Virginia and one in the Appalachian area of Kentucky. Mm. We had about 4,500 second-graders in the study. So students were first identified out of this total of 4,500 kids, according to their established practices in their districts. This varied a great deal, including some that already said they used universal screening, but none actually used local norms, nor did any of them provide training in the use of teacher rating scales to identify gifted learners, Mm -hmm. like this alternative method's going to use that I'm getting ready to tell you about. So this was the district-identified sample. So the business-as-usual district, some of them doing universal, some not. Uh, But mostly the districts, when they look into it, they were using cutoffs on this national norms test called the Nagliari Nonverbal Ability Test, or NNAT. You Mm -hmm. heard of that one? Uh, It rings a bell. Okay. It's a nonverbal measure used to assess cognitive ability independent of linguistic and cultural Mm -hmm. background. i got Mm -hmm. curious. They're looking like, like, shapes and colors and Mm -hmm. trying to find patterns between those things. Uh, After the districts had completed this usual, their usual process, analysts work with them to enroll a second group of additional students known as the project-identified sample. This involved administering to all second graders in the sample two universal screeners. One was a well-known three-part subscale that assessed motivation, creativity, and reading separately. Mm -hmm. Um, Teachers were trained on how to use these scales. They were given six months to observe the students, and then they came back and rated all their kids on those three components. The second universal screener was the COG-AT verbal test, which I think is pretty popular. Again, all students took that one too. So they were assessed by these three uh, scales, and then they took the COG-AT. Districts were then provided data on all the students performing above the 75th percentile on both national and local district norms Mm -hmm. for the COG-AT and one or more standard deviations above those norms on those three teacher rated scales. So then they got a bunch of information about how they did on these two things. Okay. The districts made the final decision about the number of additional students to add to their gifted programming based on these data. So they didn't say, hey, the kids have to have a cutoff here for you to, you know, invite them in. Um, This was up to district discretion after they had um, this information. Teachers didn't know by which methods students got into the program. They all received the same instruction. In the end, about 500 kids were identified for services using either method. 60% were identified with this project method. 40% to the district method. Mm -hmm. Project method identified 15% of minority kids, black and Hispanic. District method identified uh, 8% of minority kids. Okay. Multi-level regression models, district fixed effects was the main um, model here. Key result in looking into how the two identified groups were different prior to the curriculum intervention, they found that after controlling for gender, the project identified students on average scored 2.6 points higher on the COG-AT, then did the district-identified kids, mm-hmm. but no difference when it came to the motivation, creativity, and reading scale ratings I was telling you about. Uh, and whether a district was also using universal screening, according to them, was not a statistically significant um, thing when it came to looking at the ratings. The groups did not differ on their scores on the Iowa Test of Achievement that were at, administered as pretest. Post-test, you still with me, Mike? No, Sorry, Yep, this yep, yep, ta- t- 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 trying to. Yep. It's taken a while, I know. Uh, all right. Now results post-test measured. Students identified through the project process outperformed students identified through the district process by 0.16 standard deviation, which is pretty small, but still on both a written expression part of the Iowa subtest and they also outperformed on the total Iowa assessment that was also used as a post-test test. No statistical differences between the groups when it came to the reading and vocabulary subtest. No differences when it came to these two writing tasks they gave the kids and these four unit assessments based on this ELA curriculum they were taught. Mm -hmm. So analysts close by saying that this nonverbal NNAT thing um, that a lot of districts use may limit the gifted pool. Why identifying uh, multiple routes, identification routes, in this case, teacher ratings mm-hmm. two universal screeners and judgments based on this data they gave districts demonstrated that students can do just as well or better when identified with these local norms, at least in ELA in rural areas <laughs> than students identified by the district process. Whew.
1: OK, well, that I is know. a lot. I know it was a lot. It was a lot. All right. But the main takeaway is that. Any district or charter network, private school, when they're identifying kids for their gifted programs, they should use multiple assessments, right?
2: And right. In universal, well, in this case, the universal screeners, they use multiple universal universal screeners. screeners.
1: Right, right. I mean, use them universally. And the idea is that different kids will pop up on these different assessments as gifted, or sometimes teacher ratings. And Mm -hmm. you don't want to do it where the kid has to do, look good on all of these different assessments. It just, they look good on any of them. They get included as a way of trying to be as inclusive as possible.
2: Well, right. Well, we didn't actually know. When they gave the, the districts the information, mm-hmm. you know, they may have not included all. I mean, they may have different criteria for which d- kids they were going to include. Yeah, But interesting. they were still above this, I think, 75th yeah. percentile. So, And, and it does but, yeah.
1: sound like this local norm, though. What, they were district norms. And what we really want to see are school-based norms in, in other uh, words. Yeah, right? that's right. I think the idea being that if you're in, a, let's say, a big, huge district with some high-poverty schools, mm-hmm. low-poverty schools... If you just use district norms, most likely you're going to mostly identify affluent kids. Uh, If you do school-based norms, then every school in in the district ends up having a gifted education program and you identify many more poor kids and black and Hispanic kids than you otherwise would, which is what we want to do, especially in the early grades to try to get as many kids as possible on the pathway of being able to do advanced level work later on.
2: You're actually reminding me, sometimes they use the phrase local and sometimes they use district. So Mm -hmm. I'm not exactly sure whether it was always district. It might have been some school. I don't know for sure.
1: Well, I like it. It's an important topic, one that's near and dear to our heart. As as you know, Amber, uh, we have a a national working group on advanced education uh, that we are leading that is doing its work. And this is exactly the kind of thing that we are looking at to try to figure Mm -hmm. out good advice to give school districts. How do we improve their gifted and talented programs and identification is a huge part of that.
2: Yep. Yeah. And I, I failed to mention this UVA researchers Ugh. here, Carolyn Callahan and others, so... I oh, got to love it. Old right. stomping ground. The, the
1: <laughs> second oldest public university in oh, the country. Oh, here
2: we go. <laughs> 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 got to look at that.
1: All Cross right. to the Wahoos. All right, Amber. Well, hey, that is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week. I'm Amber Northern. And I'm Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute signing off. The Education GapFly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at fordhaminstitute.org.